Thank you for listening to this message from Southridge Community Church, located in Clinton, New Jersey. We hope God speaks to you through this message today and that you find new ways to apply His Word to your life. Additional messages and more information can be found on southridgecc.org. So let's get started. We're in a series called Gloriously Woven. And in this series, we're talking about Ephesians chapter 4. It's focused largely on Ephesians 4. About how God's purposes are gloriously woven into his people called the church. Uh, Earlier on in Ephesians chapter 4, in the first number of verses, Paul talks about the fact that his purposes, his design, is gloriously woven into his people. Uh, Paul tells us that God has equipped his church, not just this local church, but his people all throughout the world with gifts and abilities and capacities that enable his people to be built up, to be strengthened, to serve, encourage, and love one another, for his people to be rooted and grounded in the truth. So for the first six or seven verses, Paul talks about God's purposes being gloriously woven through his people as he gives them gifts and places them in areas to serve and represent him. Then he turns slightly, and now he says also who God is, his character, his life is supposed to be gloriously woven through how we live, how we carry ourselves, how we function. His purposes are to be gloriously woven through our attitudes, our actions, the demeanor of our lives. Last week, we said that there's two ways that we live. We either live in a way that's disconnected from the life of God, or we live in a way that's connected from the life of God. And that doesn't look like just generic spirituality. It actually gets into the details of how we do life, how we operate. So we won't get to these some this time long, but in Ephesians chapter 5 and 6, Paul gets into some details of what that looks like in relationships. We'll simply go there a little bit this morning, but we'll get there a whole lot more probably in a number of, probably actually next ministry year, we'll take a deeper dive into some of these things. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17, Paul says this, So I tell you this, and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their thinking. Paul says there's a way that you're not supposed to live. He uses the word Gentiles, not in the technical sense of of non-Jewish, but using that sort of generically as those who are separated from God. He says you're not supposed to live in a way that's separated from God. And he describes that as the futility of their thinking. What he seems to reference by that is that our futility of thinking is thinking that's devoid of the truth of God. Thinking that somehow we can be who we're made to be without the truth of God being brought to bear on how life works. You know, if you just think of some of the news items that we're presently living in this week, I'm sure you saw the reports of significant levels of racism in the the Minneapolis Police Department after the murder of George Floyd last year. The horrific levels of injustice 
So no matter how much we tell ourselves, this is who we need to be or this is what's appropriate, somehow it's elusive. There's futility of thinking and actually being able to be the kind of people that we're supposed to be. It was also evident in the conviction of the person who shot the, I think it was 11 people dead in the Pittsburgh synagogue a couple of years ago. That no matter what we do, there's futility of thinking and thinking that somehow we can become the kind of people that we should be or that we're supposed to be. Tomorrow is Juneteenth where we celebrate the release of slaves in Galveston, Texas. And so we look back on even a national history of slavery where there's oppressed people, where great injustice was done. It's evident that we're not able to deliver ourselves. We're not able to set ourselves free from the darkness and evilness of our own heart. I realize there's our national headline sorts of things, but that's also true in the depths of our personal lives as well. Paul goes on to say, they are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God. There you have it, separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them and due to the hardening of their hearts. Notice, this is Ephesians 4.18. If you can put that verse on the screen, that'd be great. Notice Paul actually starts with hardness of heart. He says, hardness of heart leads to ignorance, leads to not knowing the truth, which leads to being darkened or separated from the life that God has. We're separated from the life of God. And all of those areas start with stubbornness. They start with hardening of hearts. They start with the fact that we tell, take self-ownership. And because we take self-ownership, we become ignorant of God's truth, how it should be gloriously woven into our lives. And we've become separated and darkened from whom God has created us to be. Verse 19, he says this, having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality, so as to indulge in every kind of impurity, and they are full of greed. Paul says, having lost all sensitivity, fascinating that he brings that up. Here's what I want you to hear. As a follower of Jesus, you are not called to be a robot. You are not called to be less than human. In fact, it's actually sin. It's actually darkness. It's our evil that causes us to become desensitized as human beings. Through knowing Christ, through delighting in God, through knowing his love and mercy, that actually sensitizes us to the beauty and truthfulness and glory and delight of who God is. We're not called to be robotic, mechanical, religious, plasticky kind of people. We're actually sensitized to the life of God. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality. Notice that he connects sensuality or sexuality to the loss of sensitivity. It's a huge issue in our world, in our modern culture. We live in a modern culture that's saturated with sensuality. It's saturated with sexuality. It's saturated with pursuing our own sexual pleasures, however we want to pursue that. 
That whatever fills our desires, that's appropriate, that's good, that's legitimate. Why does that happen that way? It's because if we lose sensitivity, if we lose sensitivity through a loss of connectedness to the beauty of who God is, somehow we need to make our our souls come alive. If we've lost sensitivity to that which is beautiful, good, true, delightful, if we've lost sensitivity to the wonder of God's beautiful glory, then we pursue other kinds of of things that fill our vacuum. We said when we went through the book of Revelation that the question is not whether or not you are a worshiper. The question is what you worship. The question is not whether you worship, it's what, who you worship. And so when we lose sensitivity to God's truth, when the beauty of who he is fails to shape our lives, We naturally fill that with sensuality or sexuality to somehow make us feel alive, to somehow give us a sense of adrenaline, to somehow make us feel that we're actually living human beings. It's not a surprise to me at all that that desire to make ourselves feel alive is often most expressed in the area of sexuality. God created sexuality, Genesis tells us, that he created it to be expressed between a husband and a wife, a man and a woman covenanted together in faithfulness to one another. And in the context of that faithfulness, that covenant of faithfulness, then sexuality is to be expressed within that. Later on in Ephesians chapter 5, Paul says something really interesting when it about sexuality. He says the sexual union between a husband and wife and the covenant of faithfulness is actually an expression and a picture of Christ's union with the church. It's literally what he says. That the dynamic of sexuality between the covenant faithfulness of husband and wife is actually based on Christ's union, his love, his passion, his oneness with the church. It should not be a surprise that because sexuality is so closely connected to the character, the holiness, the faithfulness, the goodness, the love of God, it should not surprise us that it's highly volatile. It's an area where there's tons of cultural debates, where there's lots of deviation from God's created design. It shouldn't surprise us that sexuality is used as something to give us an artificial sense of sensitizing our lives. It's an artificial sense of sensitizing our lives precisely because it's created by God as a picture of his union with the church. Rather than sexuality mirroring the beauty and wonder of God, in our culture it often becomes something through which we try to derive our own meaning and fulfillment. Rather than something that points us to worshiping and glorifying God, it's something that we autonomously use to derive our own pleasure and satisfaction. 
We talked on Mother's Day about God creating male and female and the beauty of those, of those contrasting creations that God has made, male and female. They mirror his contrast between light and darkness, dry land and wetland, the sun, the stars. All of creation reflects this contrastingness that God creates. So male and female both beautifully reflect the oneness of God and yet his creative contrasts. God also has a creative design for marriage to be between one man and one woman who have covenanted themselves in faithful commitment to one another. Now, friends, I realize, again, this issue is so highly volatile because it's so highly connected to our souls, our spirits, our beings. When we talk about sexuality, it's not just some sort of informational tidbit. It goes to the core of who we are. It's why it's so volatile. It's why it's such a lightning rod in our culture. Again, it shouldn't be any surprise given to the spiritual nature of, that God has brought to sexuality. But it's also an area where God specifically says, here's what I've created. Here's what I've designed. And to use it differently is damaging to my human beings. To use it differently is outside of the way that I created it. You know, maybe you're new to church. Maybe you're new to Southridge. Maybe you're watching online. It's like, 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 why don't they stay with some stuff? Like, why don't they stay in a lane that's a little broader and easier to travel in? Like, why do we got to talk about this stuff that, you know, there's like potholes everywhere. Like, why has God to talk about stuff that's so volatile, that's so disagreeable? Why do we as a church got to Well, here's the friends deal. Here's, here's the deal, friends. <laughs> However that works. God's truth needs to be gloriously woven through every nook and cranny of our lives. And I would also say this as well. There's not one single one of us in this room that doesn't need to be confronted by God's truth in some particular area. Kind of one of the ways that I fear when I'm talking about this sort of thing is we kind of check the box and say, like, ah, oh, good, he's teaching on something that, yeah, he needs to be taught, man. Needs to, our culture needs to, like, trust me, friends, every one of us in this room needs to wrestle with God's truth in an area that directs, directly contradicts how we're presently living. Tim Keller always says, if God's truth always agrees with you, always affirms you, always makes you feel good about yourself, always validates you, you're not following God's truth. You're not hearing it. And what I can say to you is this. If you don't somewhere in some place of your life deeply wrestle with God about something that he says is true, if you're not, if you're not in this moment in a direct clash with something about God, you're not really knowing his truth. Because if you're a human being, his truth clashes with some part of your will. Maybe it's financially. Maybe it's in the area of forgiveness. Maybe it's in the area of the kind of pleasures that you pursue. Maybe it's not sexuality. Maybe it's another area. But what I can tell you is this. 
If God's truth is not contradicting your life, you're not hearing God's truth. And so there are different ways that all of us need to hear the the contradictory nature of God's truth to us. Certainly sexuality is a pretty significant one in our culture. Maybe that applies to you. Maybe it doesn't. But the last thing that any of us need to do is sort of be arrogant and proud and think that, well, this applies to somebody else. Trust me. God's truth needs to rub you the wrong way in some particular area of your life. It needs to clash with your will. It needs to clash with your preferences. It needs to clash with your ideals in some particular way. And if it doesn't, it simply means that you're following yourself. You're not really following after God. So there's the disconnected way to live. Then there's the connected way to live. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 20 and 21, he talks about putting off. And then he says, put on. Two pretty basic things. We talked about that a lot last week. We won't get into some of that. Um, Do a flyover a little bit this week. He says this in verse 20 and 21. That, however, is not the way that you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. Notice real quickly, he talks about learned, heard, taught. One of the reasons why we place a significant priority on teaching here on a Sunday morning is because it comes right out of Scripture that our lives need to be reoriented, redirected. We need to learn things. We need to hear, we need to hear the teaching of Christ. We need to be taught in him about what is true. We don't naturally, automatically gravitate to that which is true. In fact, we often naturally stray from that which is true. It's not intuitive. It's counterintuitive. So Paul places this priority on learning, hearing, being taught, and allowing God's truth to confront our lives. He says in verses 22 and 23, you are taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires. Notice the deceitful desires. Same thing as in the Garden of Eden. There's desires that we have. They're deceitful. What does he mean by that? Well, they seem like they would give us life. They seem like I have this desire. If I just carry out that desire, then I'll have life. It's not the way it works. Paul says those desires are deceitful. This does not mean, by the way, that we should be people who don't desire. Sometimes we hear that periodically. Christianity is not robotic. Christianity is not stoic. Christianity brims with desire. Desire is a godly thing. But desires need to be channeled. Desires need to be focused. Desires need to be cultivated because your desires can kill you. And they're deceitful that way. They tell you that if you follow this desire, it will bring you life, but instead it brings you death. We could list a hundred easy illustrations of that. Your desires might say, man, I need a big, fat, cholesterol hamburger every meal that I have. Like maybe that's your passion. It's your, that's a deceitful desire. It might satisfy you in the moment, but it's deceitful. It's not actually going to bring you life. It's probably going to bring you a heart attack. Deceitful desires. Man, I don't feel like getting out of bed today and going running or exercising. I just want to veg in front of the TV. Well, yeah, that's a deceitful desire because it's kind of what I want to do. 
but it's not going to give me life. It's not going to keep me in shape. We could go down a thousand lists like that. So desires are not wrong. They need to be channeled. We should be people as followers of Jesus who are filled with desire, alive with desire. But those desires ultimately need to have the beauty, the glory, the wonder of Christ in them. He says, you were taught to be put off your put off your old self, and verses 23 and 24 in Ephesians 4, to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. He says, put off the old and put on the new. Again, we looked at that pretty significantly last week, what that means. It doesn't mean simply having an artificial exterior. It doesn't mean just Conform so that what's visible looks good on the outside. No, scripture says you are a new creation in Christ. You are new. Let that new creation be lived outside of you. Allow the newness of who you are to permeate your being. I'll just crank through a number of ways that we can contrast our old self with our new self. And as I do this, kind of ask yourself this question. Am I more in touch with my old self or do I constantly refresh and remind myself of my new self? Am I sort of still locked in to the old person or am I constantly reminding myself of God's truth that I'm new in Christ, that I'm his new creation. And I'm allowing that new creation to be lived through me. Listen to some of these. The old self was antagonistic toward God. The new self is welcoming of God's truth. By nature, through Christ, you are no longer antagonistic to God. You no longer just write God off. Instead, your new self is welcoming of God's truth. God's spirit has made your new self alive to welcome and embrace God's truth. The old self perceived God as a threat to your personal autonomy. Your new self welcomes God's truth for direction. Your old self that sort of viewed God as a threat to your personal autonomy, that old self is dead. Your new self welcomes the truth of God for giving you direction. The old self sees God as an intruder into our lives. The new self delights in fellowship and communion with God. The old self sees God as stealing my own show. The new self sees God as inviting us in to the richness of life in him. You are no longer the old person where God is a threat to your own person. Instead, you, your new self is invited into the beauty, the wonder, and the goodness of life found in Christ. The old self seeks out the darkness and is driven by our own greed and appetites. The new self welcomes the light and lives in the freedom of God's path. The old self hides and cowers in the bondage of our own self-ownership. 
The new self blossoms, grows, and flourishes in walking in obedience to Christ. Listen, friends, your old self, that coward in bondage, your old self of ownership, your old self that followed your own greed, that self is dead. Through the Holy Spirit, you are now made alive to pursue Christ and walking in obedience. You're made alive and sensitive to the beauty and wonder and love. You, your soul delights in that. That's who you are as a new creation in Christ. The old self is an animosity with a God with God and is under God's judgment. The new self embraces God and basks in his freedom and delight. The old self is separated from God and alienated from him. The new self is joined to God and celebrates being his sons and daughters. The old self hides from God, stays to the shadows, and cowers in the corners. The new self walks in the open with God and joyfully lives in the full light of his presence. Friends, listen, your old self hunkered down in the corners. Your old self hovered in the shadows. You're not the old self anymore. Through Christ, you're the new self. You're the new person. You're created in him. Now you joyfully live in the light of his presence. Now you have fellowship with him. Now you delight him. That's your new self. You are not your old self. You are the new self. And Paul says, man, let that new self come out. Let it be seen. May your new self be alive to the purposes of God. May you be joined to God. You know how that works is the walk of a lifetime. We began talking about some of the issues in our culture related to sensuality and sexuality. And I realize there's lots of landmines there. Probably all of us in this room have people who we deeply love, maybe even we ourselves, who pursue our own path. And friends, I'm here to say that God's grace, his mercy, and his love extends to every last person. It extends to you. It extends to your loved ones. A couple months back, I just wanted to kind of dive more deeply into that. And so I read a book called Messy Grace by Caleb Kaltenbach. You want to check it out if you're wrestling with how to respond to somebody you know deeply who is, whose sexual life or sexual patterns is outside of God's design. Caleb was actually born into a heterosexual marriage. His parents got divorced when he was about two years old. Uh, after the divorce, his mother immediately married another woman. And so from two years old, all the way up through his teenage years, Caleb, the only environment that he knew was growing up in a home with two moms in a lesbian relationship. He'd been to countless Gay parties, that was just his normal life. He just was fully 
involved and embraced in that community. But he said periodically they would go on different marches and he said sometimes people would spit on them. He said he remembers conversations between him and his mom. Their conversations would go like this. Why do Christians hate us so much? Why do they hate us? Why are Christians who claim to follow Jesus, why are they so mean? Why are we cursed at? Why are we spit on? And it was literally the sum total of his life from a baby up through mid-teens. Eventually, in his teenage years, just through the work of God and his Holy Spirit, someone shared the gospel with him. And he became a follower of Jesus. And he's been in a number of churches. Presently, he's on the pastoral staff of a church. I believe it's out in California. And one of his passions is to, yes, hold to the beautiful truth of God's design for sexuality. Holding to the beautiful truth that, yes, sexuality is a beautiful gift of God given to a husband and wife and a covenant together in faithfulness. And so he holds to that truth. But he also has this deep passion this deep mission to make sure that every person knows that they're loved. To make sure that his mom and his dad, who are both now in gay relationships, so that they know that even though he may disagree with their choices, he loves them deeply. He cares for them deeply. He speaks to them kindly. He treats them warmly. Friends, listen, may we as a church be a people who, yes, hold to the beauty of God's truth, but may every last person that our paths cross with, whatever they believe, however they live, may they know that even though we may not affirm or approve, we still deeply love that even though we may not condone or confirm, we have deep care and we have deep compassion. May those from every walk of life walk through our doors and the first thing they notice is I may see things differently, but I'm deeply loved here. I'm deeply cared for here. I'm deeply embraced here. Just like every one of us, there's certainly things in my life and in your life who God does not condone, he doesn't confirm, he doesn't approve, and he doesn't affirm. He doesn't. But his love is toward you, 
His care is toward you. His compassion is toward you because he's a God filled with grace and truth. May we be a people who put off not believing in God's truth. May we be people who hold on securely to God's truth, even in areas of sexuality. But may we also be people who put off hatred, a demeaning presence, a disdainful look, an embittered attitude. May we put all that stuff off and put on sexual faithfulness in the context of marriage. May we put on sexual faithfulness and holiness, whether we're married or single. May we put on love and care and compassion. May we put on the new self and be sensitized to the God who's filled with love and beauty and truth. I'm going to ask your team to come out, and as they do, why don't we stand and We're going to sing once again the song that we ended Mother's Day with, the song of God's blessing. Listen, friends, whether you're male or female, single or married, family, whatever, there's a lot of cursing that goes on in our world, a lot of cursing. Uh, But this is an ancient prayer from the book of Numbers, probably 3,500 years old. And it's a prayer of blessing because God desires to bless. He's a good God. His blessing sensitizes our souls. And so let's let's sing the song together.
thousand generations and your family and your children and their children and their children may his favor be upon you and a thousand generations and your family and your children and their children and their children your son are filled with grace and truth. May we be sensitized to the beauty of the new creation that you have made us. May we be sensitized to your mercy, your grace, your glory, your holiness, your goodness. May we be sensitized to that. And may that flow out of us as we share truth, as we love one another, as we love those who see things differently, as we are kind and compassionate and merciful to whoever we meet. Give us the power to do that by the strength of your Holy Spirit. And we ask it in the name of Jesus, our Savior, and everyone who agreed said, amen. Amen. Our prayer team will be down here to the right. We'd love to pray with you. God bless and have a great day.